Hello, everyone. My name is Hero Vincent, and I'm here simply to be a vessel of truth. The Black Caucus Movement is a stage, stemmed from a relentless pursuit and a systematic oppression of our people and our unwavering fortitude and mental desire to overcome it. We have invited leaders and warriors from all across our community to sit down and discuss the issues that plague us and restrict our advancement and put forth solutions that are tangible yet radical so that we may once again thrive as a people. With us today, I am pleasured and honored to have back on the panel, uh, Professor Paget Henry. Uh, he is a professor of sociology at Brown University in African Studies. Uh, he is here to discuss some of the things that we are seeing in our daily lives on the news and our, on our media and hopefully give us some guidance on how we can create a good structure uh, and seek good people uh, to find the way forward. Hello, Dr. Paget, and welcome back. Thank you, Hero. It's good to be back. Yes. And I'm really looking forward to our, our, our discussion uh, today. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, are you paying attention to the news? And I know that you're not a economist, but how long do we have left? <laughs> well, I'm not sure exactly what you have in mind. What are you referring to? Uh, uh, well, you know, we can go down so many lines. We can go, you know, when does the world explode? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, when does fire start? When the revolution, what is happening? Uh, okay. Well, you know, I don't think that uh, we're on the, on, on, on the verge of an explosion yet. But I, I do think that the energy from the George Floyd insurrection is still with us. And that uh, it's a very, very strong wave and that we should continue to ride that wave, uh, to try and steer it, uh, and to try to pull from it, you know, um, a lot of the unfinished themes uh, that it is throwing up, unfinished themes uh, from the civil rights era and even from Reconstruction. Uh, as you've seen, uh, the, the, the tearing down of these Confederate statues, the revisiting of the place of, of the Confederacy uh, in American history and the way it continues to impact uh, contemporary American life. These are some of the issues uh, that the George Floyd insurrection have put back on the agenda. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, and so I think that um, we need to pay attention to a lot of these unfinished projects, unfinished goals, and they're all coming back, you know, uh, as somebody who lived through uh, the struggles of the 1960s and early 1970s, 
uh, <clears throat> when I listen to the, to the Black Lives Matter movement, when I listen to other groups, uh, I'm hearing so many themes that were so prevalent in the 1960s. Like uh, what? Oh, reparations. Reparations, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, 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 yeah. I mean, that was big. <laughs> that was big. Uh, it's never going away. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, <clears throat> we 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 uh, and I think uh, even before we get started, we really should um, just note here the passing of John Lewis. Uh, he was such uh, a powerful, powerful advocate. Uh, of one solution to our problems. Uh, you know, he was definitely Martin Luther King's disciple in the sense that he believed passionately uh, in a nonviolent uh, solution. And at the heart of that nonviolent solution was love. That uh, he was a firm believer in the Christian principle of loving your enemies. And that uh, this is one way uh, to respond uh, to the situation we're in. It's a tough way, uh, difficult, as you know. Uh, it calls upon you to turn the other cheek uh, when somebody hits you, beats you up. Not many people can go down that route, but he and King, you have to give them credit for taking that stance and the exemplary manner in which they carried it out. Hmm. Uh, and so, yes, I think we, you know, should, should begin by honoring uh, uh, John Lewis. Um, blessings, blessings, blessings yeah. to you, Mr. John, Mr. Lewis. You know, we have seen so much change in this world by such, we are so minuscule, yet we hold such power to affect so much, you know? And so with his life, he, time, it's so small, but he has changed so much for the future after it. And so, you know, I can proudly and um, absolutely say thank you and how appreciative I am that you have lived your life through passion and experience and through love because that gives me hope and that gives me love and understanding that I could do the same too. So, Mr. John, blessings to you and rest in power. Absolutely. I could, I could not have said it better. So, from Martin Luther King, you know, uh, you know, you have that kind of nonviolent uh, tradition. Uh, and uh, it's small. Uh, not, as I said, not many people can go that route. I must confess that, um, you know, as much as I admired Martin Luther King, I uh, heard him speak many, many times. Uh, you know, it was not my path. I just couldn't. I guess I just wasn't spiritually mature or strong enough 
to say, yes, this is this is this is going to be the path that I take. But let me tell you, it was just really, really powerful to be in Martin Luther King's presence. Um, I can give you a, a classic example. Uh, my father, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, he did just did not believe in a lot of protesting. Uh, he believed in hard work and that we should organize among ourselves. Uh, and that, that, that was his way. Mm. Well, <clears throat> I, um, King gave a very, very famous speech in New York at the Riverside Church. And fortunately for me, I had a seat. Uh, my sister was a member of the Riverside Church. So mm. that's how I got the seat. So I said to my dad, you know, uh, King is speaking at the Riverside Church and I'm going, I said, do you want to come? He said, sure, I'll come in here, Mr. King. So I had only one seat, right? So what I did, I seated my dad and I stayed outside because they had microphones up so you could stand okay. outside and hear. Wow. <laughs> well, let me tell you, uh, Three days after he sat and listened to Martin Luther King, I was attending City College at the time. And I came home and my dad was making his own placard <laughs> and engaged in his first demonstration. Wow. You got to give King his props, man. You could disagree with the method, but the capacity to move people, hmm. powerful, powerful. Yeah, that really does speak to um, speak to your existence whenever you can see the immediate change of like how somebody can speak one day, <laughs> one time, and then change your, and make you think about your whole life and mentality and ideology oh, and question it and then stand up for some, those, that's some powerful people. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And then you mentioned something too, uh, a little while. I want to go back just a little bit because you were talking about um, the statues that are coming down. We, we have unfinished businesses, which you, you, oh, yeah. you stated. Mm -hmm. And that we have to uh, understand why we are doing these kind of symbolic gestures and and, um, and we're doing it again. Like, uh, so these statues coming down, I found it very interesting. I was initially happy. I was like, oh, yeah, it's good. You know, knock down these statues, you know, similar racism. I'm with you. And then I see statues go up with, uh, you know, black, um, with, you know, black influence, I, I would say, or... Um, black leaders um, across different countries and those statues are going up into the place. And then I, I sat there and uh, I thought about it and I wondered about a hundred years from now when all of us are dead and gone, where there's only a few of us left who has actually lived on these days. If we go down that path of putting up statues in their place and, and continuing to idolize these, these statues and what they stood for, if in a hundred years from now, our frame of mind and our frame of action has changed and shifted into a 
well, we have the black people have all the power and, you know, maybe we oppress other people because we don't want the, the white man to rise back up and try to ruin the world with the colonization mentality. And we as power, as black people have the authority to stop them because we are, this is an idea of like, you know, we, if we walk within our own righteousness uh, and, and hubris, you know, this is definitely a, a path that we could continue to walk down. As I already see, we're putting up statues. Um, does that are we? Is that a sign that we're making the same mistakes um, well, in the past? That, and what kind of mistakes can we uh, learn from that you well, see? Already? I don't think that um, we are in a position to colonize. Uh, others, I don't think we will. Uh, but that is not to say uh, we won't have instances of abuse of power, corruption, those kinds of things. And uh, this to me is where uh, that spiritual aspect uh, becomes so important that uh, if we don't maintain a sense of our own uh, imperfection and that uh, we must continue to uh, perfect ourselves and that means to grow spiritually, that um, <clears throat> we are all capable uh, of succumbing to the seductions of power, the excesses uh, of power. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, somebody like Idi Amin, uh, you know, in Uganda would be uh, a classic uh, example where you have a black ruler come into power and it's just went completely to his head and uh, just thought that uh, he could be an absolute ruler. That uh, we have to see that that is not a white problem. That's a human problem. Hmm. And we have to guard against that, you know, uh, Yes, so I think you're, you're very wise in raising that point. Uh, <clears throat> but I think within the tradition of um, black politics, um, I, don't, I really don't think we have the desire to colonize others. I think that our tradition really, really uh, is, is, is one of sharing uh, one of community, uh, one of just trying to live in harmony uh, with others. I mean, I think those are our basic values. Uh, we don't have an imperial tradition uh, within the black community. Uh, I mean, uh, I think we, 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 we will definitely have to uh, ask ourselves the question now, now that you have so many African-Americans uh, participating 
in the US military and at pretty high levels also, have we internalized the Western imperial tradition? You know, I never thought of this before, but your question is making me, you know, uh, think about that. That, um, you know, you have all of these black generals now. Uh, they have conducted military operations uh, across the world uh, in, in America's interest. To what extent is that imperial tradition now a part of black America? And that's a good question. Something I'd never thought of uh, before, you know? Um, I think it's also uh, a Western, uh, a Western imperialism uh, thing as well, because w actually, if, if the question is what drew this frame of thought, it was actually people, activists in London and or in Europe that uh, were throwing up these statues, uh, which made me wonder about these things. Uh, I see them coming down here in the States, and I see other sim uh, lines of symbolism going up and people kind of feeding to that. I think America is more, uh, we worship money <laughs> than we do <laughs> statues. Mm. And putting people in, in places of, of power where we want them to rise up because they have money and they can give us money, um, more money. I think that's what we idolize and what we praise and what we worship these days. Mm. Um, and that's what we should break. Uh, well, let, we should, we need to talk about money, mm. you know, uh, you know, because, you know, as I was saying earlier, uh, a lot of the unfinished themes uh, of the civil rights movement of the 1960s is back, they're back on the agenda. And uh, so as I was saying, uh, reparations is one theme that's back. Uh, <clears throat> the response, the King response of, you know, beloved community, you know, where you try to create uh, a community based on love, uh, coming out of a deep spiritual religious tradition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is very interesting that um, King was able, he was profoundly influenced by Mahatma Gandhi. And he, he, he was able to bring those two spiritual traditions together uh, in a very powerful way. And, uh, you know, if you have listened to any of John Lewis's interviews, he would always talk about how they would, before any big uh, march, they would get together and practice nonviolence, mm. talk about the philosophy behind it. Uh, and that philosophy came out of both the Christian and the Hindu Hindu traditions. So it's a very deep thing. Uh, and um, the fact that it has endured this long, we always have to keep it on the agenda. I don't think it's going anywhere, uh, but I don't think it's gonna be uh, a, a solution that the average person will be able to live up to. You, you know? speak of rep reparations, or you speak of uh, the no, strategy community. of being a peace, a peaceful movement, and, and uh, striving for change through peace. 
Oh yeah, I was speaking of, you know, uh, the the peace, mm -hmm. the nonviolent, beloved community mm -hmm. response, right? So that mm -hmm. that's one thing we need to think about. It comes out of the black uh, tradition, and uh, we should value it, always acknowledge it. It produced Martin Luther King. It produced Andy Young. You know, all of those guys who just got out there and um, did not respond violently when they were beaten. And I think that that deserves, you know, solid recognition. It's a difficult thing to do. Well, you, this is, you've, you've brought me to an interesting thought because uh, we had a conversation and you were telling me about leaders and uh, the, the problem with movements today, like Occupy and Black Lives is uh, the lack thereof and the ability that we had in the past movements and past civil rights movements was be able to was being able to have um, somebody to sit at the negotiating table, and there were very few limited people that we could have, right? Which was, you know, you had very articulate people like Malcolm and, and, and very uh, charismatic and pervasive people um, who spoke of peace like Martin and love like Martin. Um, but to this day, we don't have a continuous cycle of that, right? Yeah. But is it that those people were so exceptional where Martin spoke of peace and that was 60 years ago? Mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was roughly 60 years ago. Right. And only till today, <laughs> only till today are we uh, in the streets burning it down, tearing it down. Do you think that this this uh, push for peace that we've had over the last 60 years and the push to not respond in anger and violence um, like we would be imagined to do um, if if ever we had the opportunity, um, which I don't think we're doing now, but do you think that is a, a derivative of, of um, leaders such as Marvin, uh, Martin and Malcolm uh, to be able to to speak to, so loudly about how we should act and how we should be um, represented by ourselves and each other, that so long that now uh, we are we are at a breaking point and we need a kind of like a refresher. Well, no, I mean, okay, there uh, there are always you know multiple responses operating simultaneously at any given point in time. Uh, you know, uh, Malcolm was no peace and love guy. Let's be clear on that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Separation. <laughs> um, no, and not only that, uh, he uh, made it plain that he did not exclude a violent response. Mm -hmm. He thought that under the appropriate circumstances, uh, violence was a legitimate option. The Black Panther Party, more than anything else, more than any any other group, they were the ones who refused to give up the right to be violent. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so King was definitely, as I said, uh, at one end of the spectrum on the issue of peace and love as the answer. Uh, Malcolm uh, definitely represented 
a different kind uh, of, of response. And as you said, uh, black separation, uh, you know, that we needed to get together as a community, uh, you know, not try to integrate, right? But try to build ourselves up uh, within our own communities, uh, you know, and uh, even among uh, the black Muslims, there were those who thought that uh, we should demand, you know, like uh, a state or by ourselves, not various communities in New York, LA, you know, places like Chicago, uh, but no, let's just do it this way. You give mm -hmm. us, you know, a state, you know, right. uh, and land. Uh, land, and we will, um, you know, that will be our spot, and we will reconstruct our lives uh, there. So that's very different from King, mm -hmm. you know. So black separation, uh, you know, has always, always been on the agenda and you can still hear it among some people uh, in the present moment, you know? Uh, so reparations, love, separation, right? These are all back, but these are old ideas. They were there in the 60s and they are back again. Hmm. So it tells you that we still have a lot of unresolved problems, you see, mm. and that people are finding these older responses at least useful places uh, to begin. Mm. So yeah, let's get Dr. Foster in. Dr. Foster, uh, it is a pleasure to have you on. We're live right now. Uh, we are live streaming this this conversation. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We are uh, currently conversing about the civil rights movement and some of the things of how it relates to today and all the unfinished business that we have, whether it be reparation, separation, or love, uh, and who were the, the leaders of those, those conversations and those movements um, and how it relates to today. Um, but I want to allow you to come in and, and talk a little bit about uh, your experience being uh, also part of that movement and uh, and being very aware of what was happening then. Well, thank you very much and good afternoon, everyone. Or is it good evening where you are? Yes, yeah, evening. <laughs> good evening. Evening. I I um I I got into the United States in a rather interesting way, going to university there. And when I joined the international club, they divided us into three groups to get an American exposure. My group went to the United States Supreme Court, one went to Congress, and one went to the White House. And my, of course, I'm only 20, not knowing much of anything. And um, I had a chance to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with the Associate Justice William Douglas. At the time, in 1960, he was the leading uh, liberal judge on the, Supreme, on the Warren Court. And I asked him a rather naive question, but a rather interesting answer. I said to him, sir, if we, since you're the judge and you know what's right and what's wrong, why don't you judge based on, of course, this was 1960, 
And why don't you judge, and then we have something on which to base our future actions. And it was a naive question from a naive person, and but he gave me a rather pregnant answer. He said, well, you have to first, the case has to first of all come before us. And when it come before us, as I remember it, Judge Douglas said, our decision is based on the time in which we live. Now, I, I didn't know anything about Dred Scott in the days of Roger Taney, and of course, that, that it was the same Supreme Court, the same body that made different decisions at earlier times, many of them not in our favor. Mm. But that sort of gave me an idea that what is happening then, in my view, is happening now, now which is to say, what goes down for right as against what goes down for wrong is based in the current climate of the current climate is based on the climate that we are in now and not necessarily based on what is right. So if the pendulum shifts a bit to one side or the other side, what I'm trying to say is that the court will allow that to influence them, but just for a moment. You take, for example, the situation in Texas where the Supreme Court came down a few years ago saying that, well, we don't have to affirm action as much as we used to because the situation is solved. So with the heat off and with the, the, a sense that, well, you know, you have done enough or you've gone far enough, now it's time to shift again in a different direction. So what I'm trying to say with all that is that what Justice Douglas said to me back in 1960, our decision is reflected reflects the climate in which you're in, and since the present climate is, suggests that the voting rights are now not as voting wrongs and not as bad as they used to be, back again. I hope that makes sense. Yes, uh, and you just broke out again. You said uh, they're not, uh, the voting rights today um, are not as bad as they used to be. Well, yes, I think what the Supreme Court appears to have said is that denial of Affirmative action doesn't need to be as affirmative as it used to be because the climate has changed and the minorities then are getting a better break. Not, oh, that, the, not, wow. that things, not that things are the way they should be, but they're not as bad as they used to be. That is what it's saying to me in, in, in your country. Well, this is that brings up an interesting point. Um, Mimi and uh, Doc, um, Professor Paget had this conversation as well when we were talking about affirmative action and uh, uh, diversity. Um, so, what you're implying, Doctor um, Doctor Foster, is that diversity came about because at this time, what we face is not as bad as what we face in the '60s. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, and I'll let uh, Professor Paget um, chime in on this. I think that we are lacking things from the, the movement of diversity that we had in affirmative action. And I think, um, Professor Paget, you could elaborate more on that as well, right? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's important here to recognize that the South, the American South in particular, uh, has mobilized and I mean mobilized to fight affirmative action. They uh, mobilized to try and 
overturn it, that was a conscious political goal, uh, particularly by Southern uh, legislators, that uh, they uh, thought and said very openly that the federal government had gone too far uh, in uh, with affirmative action. And, uh, and so the backlash, there's a backlash uh, against affirmative action. And uh, this, of course, uh, came to a head in 1978 with the Baki, the Baki case. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court, um, you know, itself virtually ended affirmative action uh, at that time. Uh, because they, they, they said that you cannot, they accused basically affirmative action as being reverse discrimination. And, um, <clears throat> hmm. and that's how affirmative action came to an end. And in its place, we got first diversity, which is the current lingo. And then right behind that, uh, the claim that America uh, was now colorblind. Hmm. Uh, and as we can see, uh, the backlash continues. Uh, and when I say backlash, I mean a conscious attempt at reviving the power of white supremacy. That um, th th this to me uh, is part of what we could call a counter to the civil rights movement. Uh, that there were established vested interests who were violently opposed to any notion of racial equality. And they have fought back and fought back strong. And that's part of what uh, we experience in today. You know, that those incidents in Charlottesville, <clears throat> you know, uh, um, just really brought that home very clearly. And I think that this is part of the reason why you're getting now people tearing down these statues and resisting uh, these signs of a resurgence of the Confederacy. <clears throat> uh, it, 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 it's still alive in certain parts of the South. I think that's a reality, you know? And um, so you would say that we're not facing, we're, we're facing basically the, the uh, resurgence of uh, kind of this white, suprem this white supremacist attitude. And this is the motivating theme behind all of these movements on all of the, the push for change is to, to reclaim white power instead of it being black empowerment. Do you think that's... Yeah, it's been it's been like a a, a back and forth, you know. Mm. Uh, you had uh, Jim Crow, which was the, you know, the institutionalizing of white supremacy. The civil rights movement uh, was a movement to dismantle uh, Jim Crow, and it succeeded uh, to a significant degree. To uh, dismantle uh, legal segregation, but clearly the hearts and minds of lots of people had not been changed, right? They still believed very, very, very strongly 
uh, that white people were superior. And uh, <clears throat> I think starting with uh, the Nixon administration, 1968, that we began to get uh, administrations that were quite tolerant, quite sympathetic uh, towards uh, these white supremacists. And I think that um, with the current administration, more support uh, from the top than they've ever had uh, since the civil rights movement. From the top. Well, yeah, the, pres the presidency. Mm. Uh, you, that, so you, that, uh, you know, uh, you look at, um, you know, Trump's attitude and you can see that he's got a lot of white supremacists in his base and he will give them all the signs of encouragement uh, that they need. Okay. Well, I agree. <laughs> I, I believe he's been doing that. I can see that now. I mean, I I'd never really thought about it through a, that kind of lens. I always thought that maybe we're just tired because I'm part of that bias of um, of being tired and, and being upset and, and angry and just wanting to feel the change and empowered. Um, but I'll pose this question to you, Dr. Foster. If we are facing this kind of white empower, white power movement, which I have seen those videos, uh, if we're facing this white power movement, aren't we at an incredible disadvantage when we're trying to um, get certain things uh, passed or move into a certain direction of change? First of all, I hear this word being used a lot these days, backlash. Unless my memory is impoverished, that word did not exist back in the 1960s when uh, Luther King and family were trying to make a presentation for the validity of black uh, importance. When one looks at the, your constitution, there is no mention of us in the Declaration of Independence or the other papers there. And in fact, if we come forward a hundred years, when they were celebrating the hundredth year of uh, American, uh, of the United States of America, there is no mention at all of people looking like me as having made a contribution to revolutionary effort whatsoever. Hmm. As a result, we were not regarded then in 1776 and we are not regarded back up there in, 19, in 1866 or thereabouts. The point I'm trying to make is that um, is this. When I met Malcolm X back in 1960, when he came to Howard, and by the way, when he came to Howard, the staff, I'm told, the staff had to vote to let him address Howard University because they felt he was too radical. And what I'm hearing today suggests he probably was just about right. I do not think, I do not think, I'll try and say it three times, I don't think we can ever progress as a people, I mean black people, if we allow ourselves to be 
that was called back when I first came to the United States be a part of a melting pot. Because obviously if you're a minority, you're going to be melted out before the pot goes into its cauldron state. I think that our survival, and now that we, the word backlash has not crept, but emboldened itself in our language, that the only way we can possibly, in my view, survive is to foster among ourselves a culture, a pedigree, an attitude in which we do exactly for us what David Duke is doing for them. I find it very hard to, and I mean, I'm seeing this now, having seen the backlash response to what I thought back in the 60s was letting you guys know, that is the white supremacists, that we have value. That quite frankly, that is not what they're interested in finding out, value or valueless. They're interested in maintaining the status quo, no matter how worthy you may feel. I mean, there is no great, greater concern as to whether Jim Brown, for example, that athlete or, or Bob Hayes, that other athlete, are doing well in their sports, as long as you realize who is first and who is second. So my thinking is to find our way out of this, and based on what you've said, know that we know that it's not a question of showing how good you are, but having to show that you're equal. In my view, the only way you can do that is for us to shepherd each other, one generation after the, next, next, the other generation, to show what our potential is. I remember when I was in the United States back in the 60s, you did something extraordinary. You are a credit to your race. In other words, the rest of you are nothing, but you're exceptional. So I think what we need, in my view, having felt the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune to quote Hamlet, you now have to say, okay, look, we're going to put our heads together, we're going to work hard, and turn, look inward before we dare look outward, because we are forever going to be regarded as not equal to anybody and any exceptional. So here's what I'm suggesting in response to your question. Someone or someones, plural, need to chronicle in depth all the brilliance, all the things that we have done as a people and share it among those coming up. When I was, in, when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, I couldn't point to one single thing that, well, of course, living in Jamaica, you didn't feel the heat of all of this, but I couldn't point to many things that we had uh, invented as a people. I had to find it out when I came to, came to the United States, and even then, it was not all collected in a, in a book or books, but it was, you heard a little there, a little snippet there, and, and on and so forth. Now, that is not to say that this is unique to us as a people. <clears throat> I remember going to a hotel in Jamaica about 1991, to be exact. And while I was there talking to, of course, the American visitor, he, he heard in Jamaica from a man such as myself that there was something called the U-2 incident. Just to refresh your memories, for those of you who may not remember it, this was when the United 
the, uh, the Soviet Union shot down a, a spy plane that was the Americans spying on the Russians, the Soviets. And when they accosted Eisenhower, and Eisenhower said, spy plane, no, 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 might have been one of all where the planes went, of course. And then they produced the wreckage because they shot it down, and the pilot. And that's when Eisenhower had egg on his face. So I'm saying all that to say is, I do not believe in amalgamation. We have tried it, and it has failed. And I don't believe in it, especially because what is now being referred to as a backlash, we are going to be vigorously resisted. In other words, it's not a case of going to school, you keep coming last, and then finally show that you're good enough to come first, second, or third. They don't care. You have to look within those of us who are older, Patrick, Mr. Uh, Professor Henry, etc. You mentor the young ones, you nurture the young ones, you encourage them because they are not interested. The other day I saw, heard, read of this young fellow of Jamaican motherhood, I don't know about his father, who became the first person in the history of Princeton University, the first black man to become a valedictorian in the Princeton's 274-year history. Hmm. Where heck, he probably never heard of Paul Robeson, who was born where he went, where he uh, matriculated in Princeton, went to Rutgers, and became in 19, I forget what year, the first black person to become a valedictorian, and how they treated him afterwards. As far as I'm concerned, I met him, came to Jamaica, got the first autograph I ever got, and Paul Robeson distinguished himself in so many different ways. I can't know that, I don't know of any other human being, period, who has been, has been in excelsis, as he has been in so many different areas. And yet, in the end, Mr. Robinson became somewhat of a recluse in Philadelphia, dying in his 70s, after having gone to the Soviet Union to sh try to say, look, I'm, I'm done with America. So my feeling is that I can point to several other instances. We have no hope, especially as a minority. And especially if you remember that by, I'm told, what, 2030, 20, 2050, thereabouts, we're we are going to be in the majority. I think that's what I heard, read somewhere, that they're going to make sure that whatever happens, we do not maintain that, or if we get there, we are going to be nothing less than, as I said, relative non-integrated. What has inspired me? I tell you this much also before I start, shut up. <laughs> it was 1950, I think I was still in high school, 57th thereabouts, where Albert, when Albert Luthuli won the Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, somewhere in South Africa for what he was doing with his, in his area. And I sw got swollen with pride because they didn't have too many Nobel Prize winners back then in anything, except probably Du Bois, I think, won a Nobel, and maybe Locke won, exceptions, mm. which again is where they slay us. These are exceptions. This is not you. So in shutting up, I'll say this one, two last sentences. Unless we look after each other and bring the younger ones up to know how good we were. For example, Edison, I'm told, he, his filament went out. It was a black man, 
who actually made the first light bulb work for any length of time. Unless we share with others, the younger ones coming up, what we have achieved as a people. As Johnson said in Ebony Magazine many years ago, as a people, we will never improve unless we give our children a chance to live better lives than ourselves. Hmm. I think that that is um, an absolutely uh, wonderful take. And I think that we often confuse better lives than ourselves with more convenient lives than ourselves. And I think that if we can uh, have better conversations of what it, what it means to be better, better people, better human, live better lives, um, more meaningful, more substantial lives uh, than the fleeting joys of materialism and consumerism that we have today, um, we can give our children a future. Uh, when it comes to... Uh, um, assimilation and uh, and our path toward amalgamation. Uh, I think that we that is a very you 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 might have just cut deep for a lot of people, uh, doctor, um, because that is a very hard conversation to have with people about uh, our larger society and how we should operate as people. Because right now we have this hierarchy system uh, that allows for sociopaths to make it to the top. And I don't think it's necessarily about race when it comes to um, the division that we have. It, it's on the surface about race, but on but underneath the surface, there's something deeper. There's some, some deeper thoughts of of hate um, that has nothing to do with skin color, um, but it's it's self-inflicted, uh, but it's just not self-directed. Um, I and I think that in the larger scheme of the conversation, what we we should have um, real talks about um, separation, not just by race, but uh, into smaller societies, into smaller groups. And I and I think. Um, uh, Dr. Um, Paget will have a better idea of how to articulate uh, what that kind of society will look like. But we only have the capability of following 150 to 200 people, and we have a really hard time doing that today. <laughs> I can tell you I do. And uh, trying to operate in smaller societies without giving up what we have achieved in technological advancements, uh, I think if we can have better conversations of how to do that and operate in smaller groups, Maybe we can move to a, a stronger future, more secure future uh, than depending on people who really don't care. You know, that was not a black knee kneeling on a white neck. Mm. It was the other way around. And so many, of, so many others untold. And in fact, I get it. It's still happening elsewhere. It's not a question of not caring. It's a question, in my view, of this is the way things will continue to be, no matter how many trips you make to the Congress, mm. no matter who is in the White House. Yes, I, I rejoiced mm -hmm. when Obama became president. But if you say to me, how did Obama from the Chicago influence the Chicagoans, is that the right word, to get them to look at life well a little differently and less brutishly on each other. I would have to say I don't 
unless one of you can point this out to me, I don't have any evidence that the president was able to make any difference in the neighborhood in which he grew up, or for that matter, Jesse Jackson, when he was there before him. It is terrible to remember that a young lady who left from Chicago to go sing at his inauguration didn't do much singing after that. She was killed in a gun battle. And so, if you, while I can appreciate the president trying to be a president to all people, Chicago is just as bad as when he, as it has ever been since the days of my good friend Al Capone. Mm. So it, it troubles me then that we, ha I mean, if, if you were a parent, and I'm a parent, and my child behaved the way we behave as young people, we would be failed parents. Mm. So someone needs to take the parental role as the late, what's his name, Mayor Daly, I forget his first name now, George, is it of uh, Chicago, looked after his people and made sure that the elections came out the right way and uh, and a few other things. So the point I'm making is that, the whole, uh, well, let me say this one sentence. Mm. Parenting needs to be taught. Mm. Fertility has nothing to do with parentility, if that's right. <laughs> it needs to be taught and exquisitely so important among our people who are behind in the race for equality. So if there's anything I would share with this conversation, based upon what I've been exposed to with, in order to get at my day. By the way, today is my birthday, so you can all say happy birthday. Oh, happy, happy birthday. birthday. We're going to yeah. sing a special Stevie Wonder version. <laughs> well, it, it, How it, old it, are you turning, uh, Dr. Pat, uh, Dr. Uh, Foster? I beg your pardon? Uh, may I ask how old you turn in? How old am I today? Yes, sir. Well, may I ask you to take a guess? And if you come within five years, then I'll give you a pass. If not, I'll tell you how old I am. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Uh, let's say 80. 85. Exactly right. 80? Right on the spot. 80 years of age. Oh, and good. I rejoice good. in that. Good, 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 good. Blessings, good, blessings, good. blessings. Welcome oh, yeah. to another year of uh, empowering. Thank you, my friend. If this is the way I'm going to start my 81st year, then it's off to a good start. Oh, man. But I do believe, gentlemen, of all the things I've read, seen, and heard, unless we develop the herd mentality, and by that I mean you go out in the bushes, and when the rain or snow, whatever is happening in, in, in the mother country, all the beasts huddle together. Unless we develop that sort of approach, not only to ourselves, but to the young ones, we will be forever lost. Because as you rightly said, the backlash is now with us. Hmm. I think we have to look at uh, what we have actually done and uh, the progress that we have in fact made, the backlash is an attempt to push us back, right? The question is, have they pushed us back <clears throat> all the way? I don't think so. 
I mean, for anyone who was in the United States in the 19, well, let's say the 1950s, when America was legally segregated and you look at America today, right? You have mm -hmm. to give some credit to the leaders of the civil rights movement. They brought profound changes uh, to the lives uh, of African-Americans. I think this is very, very clear in the area of education. When I came to America, so few blacks in the universities. I was an undergraduate at City College. City College was in the heart of Harlem, right? 137th Street and Broadway. And it was 95% white. Hmm. Now, if you went to Queens College, Queens College is in the heart of Queens. It was 95% white, hmm. right? Uh, <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> you know, a group of us, we took over the South Campus of City College and we held it, demanded that we have, uh, in those days we called it the Sikh program. Mm. Right? And uh, we wanted to increase the number of African-Americans at City College. Could you tell we, us what the Sikh program was? It was like an affirmative action program before there mm. was affirmative action. I see. Right? <clears throat> and basically what we did, what we called for, uh, because the high schools, in, in, in the Harlem area was so bad, right? That what we worked out was that if you got a B uh, from your high school, right? A B, that's all, a B, that you would get into City College, but instead of doing four years, you did five. You had to do this uh, preparatory year before you actually began uh, regular courses. Wow. Yeah, the high schools were that bad. You, you, you would graduate from you know, uh, high school in Harlem. No college would take you. Hmm. And so we were saying, look, these people's parents are paying taxes. Yeah. City College is a public, public, public university, right? Their parents are paying taxes like everybody else. Why should City College be 95% white when it's in the heart mm. of all? Mm. Huh? And I mean, go to City College today. Look at it, right? Mm. It's, it's like, what, 50, 55% white now as opposed mm. to 95%? Mm. I think that's a significant gain. And it was a hard struggle to get that, uh, you know? And uh, I think in the areas of education, in the professions, right, we have made uh, significant gains. Now, if the current movement of reconstituting white power, right, <clears throat> had its way, we would be out of these places. And so what I'm saying is we've got to we have to have a sense of what we achieved in the past and what we need to do to go forward.
to go forward, right? <clears throat> we have to make sure that even more African-American uh, young men and women uh, have access to uh, university education. Now, since the backlash has been on, the numbers of African-Americans in higher education have been dropping. Mm -hmm. right? That is something that should concern us. We've got to make sure that those numbers begin to go up again and to go past the peak produced by the civil rights movement. That's how I see it. It's an ongoing struggle. The moment you, you kind of relax and think you don't have to struggle, you will see what you achieve rolling back. I think mm. that's the lesson here. We have to stay mobilized. We have to stay on the case, right? Uh, this is America, right? Mm. And this is how you live in America. This is how you, this is how you have to live in America. Yes, I, uh, I would say, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I always like to keep myself thinking that never be comfortable, never be in my comfort zone. Because the second that I've gotten to my comfort zone is the moment that I get knocked out of it. And so it's like a, it's a constant um, motivation to always be on, on your toes so oh, that yeah, you know, because there's always be this, this overlooming threat to kind of knock you out of your space. Right. Uh, I th and I think you said something that was, that was very interesting. Um, also on the phone, I asked you about um, your pessimism toward these programs that we have already kind of uh, introduced throughout the past that you say we have this unfinished business with. And I want to pose this to you, Dr. Foster. Um, the pessimism we talked about came from the basic uh, idea of asking these things, rep reparations, diversity, affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it all sounds good in theory. Um, but the problem is, who are you asking these things from? Correct? Mm -hmm. mm. So we constantly ask uh, for these things that would seemingly be uh, morally acceptable uh, and uh, generally just the right thing to do. <laughs> um, but um, we, we, see, we see this kind of uh, resistance to these ideas for so long. Uh, and we keep demanding it and we keep waiting until we're at this end explosion or this end fight, this end burst of anger and um, disappointment and confusion, which direction to go to. So, uh, Dr. Foster, when you're talking about uh, this kind of this, this separation, what does the separation look like? Uh, and how do we operate with that that kind of idea in mind in the future? Or, it always seems like we're not trying to to look for vengeance or um, to do the same thing that they that they have inflicted upon us. We just want a better life and a better future. So, how would we achieve this this type of separation? Um, because I, I I'm pretty sure we won't <laughs> we won't be able to like just claim land or, without a fight or anything like that. And I'm sure a lot of us don't really want to be out in the streets fighting. Yeah, if you if if you if you heard me use the word separation, then I misspoke. Mm. In medicine, there is something called intersusception, in which the bowel of little children, little children, goes inside 
the 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 bowel sort of like uh, I can't quite put it, but it 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 invaginates, it goes within, and so you end up having an intestinal obstruction. I use that example to that paradigm that just it's not so much a question of separate from. It's a question of in going within. Uh, 2,400 years ago, before Christ came on earth, Sophocles, a Greek uh, uh, playwright and philosopher, said, the keenest sorrow is to find ourselves as the sole cause of our adversities. I'm saying that to say is that you have a city college, as Professor Prof. Henry was saying, and it was 95% white, and now it's 55%. And the question I would put to him and to the panel, the folks here, is how many of those people who supplanted people who were there before, and by the way, those people didn't go out in the bushes. They went to the suburbs of some other place, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. How many of those people who took those positions had a sense of passion and a sense of purpose? Because without those, just to occupy a space, mm. to me, is not enough. I was in the 60s, uh, 50s, 60s, when Rosa Parks did what Rosa Parks did. I was a bit chagrined to find, you mean that's all she did, just sit in a bus? <laughs> in the more paternalistic period of that time, I was not made aware as an onlooker that she had a job, was, a, was an activist, a female activist, and in fact uh, made a contribution other than just sitting. It wasn't until Angela Davis came on some time later with her Afro, somewhere between Staten Island and New York, Manhattan, that I saw and read about an activist. The point I'm making is this. If you are going to, once you realize, and I didn't realize it then, I thought all we had to do was to prove ourselves. See, we can do what you're doing until the backlash came into the English language, as far as I'm concerned. It is important to recognize that Ms. Parks, for all the good she did, ultimately had to leave Alabama. Her husband, her barber, and took his family, she and the children, and went to Detroit, didn't really anchor there, came back and eventually finished her life up there. In other words, China saying, she, 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 there were two things against us from what I read. Envy and she lost her job. Lack of support. She was being threatened and there was no one to, uh, well, the, the, the movement, the NAACP where she worked, there was no one there offering her sufficient insulation. So if no one is offering you insulation, despite your lack of perspiration, you have to do it yourself. And doing it yourself, and I, when I say you have to do it yourself, I'm speaking of the mentor, the people like Prof. Henry who have been through the mill, appreciated the grist, and say, look, 
Give me ten people. It, we are told that in the days of Sparta, those Spartans hung a little, hung, hung a something out there and defeated almost the universe. Give mm-hmm. me ten people. Let me teach them. Let me doctrinate them. Let me inculcate them, and I will teach them of where we are coming from. Mm-hmm. That is, a, in other words, not just mere numbers. You know, if you're a number of a school of fish, a baiting whale will eat you off in just for breakfast. But each of you are armed with knowledge, inculcated with the truth. Then I don't discover at age 70-something that Nearest Green was the man who put Jim Daniels on the world, or that, what else did I discover relatively recently? That it wasn't Edis, Thomas Edison who made the light bulb, but some other black, a black man who did it. Or for that matter, it was an Indian who guided Lewis and Clark across the ravine there from the east to the west coast. So the point of this, all of this shouldn't be by mere happenstance. I learned these things, but then I already have my profession. I already have something to do. I'm, in other words, occupied. I will share with Professor Henry that what we need to do, and I would get the money to do it, is to start a press and prevent the oppressed, if that's a noun, of all us because of our ignorance and let us know what, we, what our ancestors did. Only then can you have a sense, in my view, sirs, gentlemen and ladies, that we can match up to what was went before. Now, my daddy was a doctor. But when I was a kid and I looked on them books, they looked huge. I mean, it wasn't like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They, those pages went into the <laughs> thousands. And I said to myself, how am I going to manage this? And that was only one of the, the, the hurdles I faced until I heard, heard a sermon that just recently by, by what's his name, uh, Osteen, bless yourself. And I realized that the obstacles that are ahead of you, if my father wasn't living in my house, I would say this is ridiculous. I can't, I, this, is not, this doesn't compare in size to any of the books I'm using in high school. And so you have to inculcate, indoctrinate, educate people, not just in terms of numbers, but say, look, each of you have a mission. So if you get the sense that you're like the raven on Noah's Ark or the birds that came after, your mission is to find dry land. And if you can't find it, then you come back home and start again. So in, in summary, what I'd say is this. Numbers are good, but educated numbers are far better. Then they, in turn, can go out and talk with the other people, the next generation, because it's going to require not just numbers, but educated numbers to match up to what it is. So if I give people the sense that, I, that nothing has been achieved, far from it. I had the love to talk with Martin Luther King when, he, when I was first in the United States. And he educated me on a few things. But just listening to what we're talking about, to me, we have to have this commitment. Okay, you don't want to be one of those little plankton or thing that the baleen whale just sups, or the whale shark just sups up and that's it. But you want to be armed. You don't want to be a pilot fish hanging by the, for the crumbs as they fall from the mouth of the shark. You want to be 
doing your own cooking. That's it. Hmm. Let, let me just say, you know, one of the things that I really admired about the um, Black Studies programs that came out of the 60s is that a lot of them had that commitment that you're talking about, that they uh, <clears throat> set up these programs and their whole purpose uh, was in fact to educate uh, up and coming black youth about the black tradition, uh, you know, uh, and um, I have been a member of the Department of Africana Studies at Brown. And I mean, that's what we do. Our whole mission, right, is to correct, right, uh, <clears throat> a lot of the inaccuracies about the history of our people, uh, the idea that uh, we've made no contributions, right, uh, to American society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that uh, the people who are graduating from these programs are leaving these programs with a much better sense of the history of peoples of African descent, uh, the people of Africa, people of the Caribbean, Afro-Brazil, uh, you know. So I, I think that um, the, the, these programs, and, and if we look at the number of them, I think that that is also very significant, right? So that we are reaching a lot of people. And you can see a lot of these young people going on to graduate school, right? Becoming professors, becoming lawyers, becoming doctors, right? And those who become doctors go out into the world definitely with a sense of mission. They know they cannot be just another GP. They know that there are all of these health disparities that these health disparities have to be addressed and it's going to be up to us to address them, right? Uh, <clears throat> so I think we've made uh, significant progress with the kind of educational uh, program that you're suggesting, but I will agree with you that we still have a ways to go. And I would also say that uh, one of the reasons why we still have a ways to go is that uh, there has to be an economic component to go along with the educational component. That, uh, you know, if we don't have businesses that will you know, contribute to the endowment uh, of Africana studies departments, of historically black colleges and universities. Uh, we are not going to achieve 
uh, this educational goal that we definitely need to achieve. Uh, so we have a long way to go, but I definitely think that uh, we've made a start and that start grew out of the civil rights movement. And uh, we've been caught in this white backlash. The white backlash succeeded in reducing the numbers of African-Americans going to graduate school. And it's now our task, right, to reverse that. And not only to reverse it, but to push it further than it was at the peak of the civil rights movement. And uh, I want to actually that I want to actually ask because I don't know, and I would like to know if I can find this resource as well. But what is the number of white people who have actually um, what what is the percentage of white people that have gone to college back when it was ninety five to five percent, and what is the number of white people that have reached poverty today? Where their percentage has decreased, so mm -hmm. I, I, I would like I would be interested in knowing um, to see if that was is is kind of how we've kind of evened out the percentages of which we has the number of black education gone up or has the number of white education gone down. One one of the best people on that is a black economist by the name of William Darity. Uh, he's got a lot of stuff on YouTube, uh, you know. He um, <clears throat> collects a lot of statistics. Uh, and so there's a lecture he gave at Brown that's definitely on YouTube entitled How Structural Racism Works. William Darity, D-A-R, R-I-T-Y. Uh, okay, and, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, lots and lots of good statistics on Blacks in education, along with what they earn after they graduate. Mm -hmm. And he shows you that there's still a gap, a big gap between what a white person with a BA and a Black person with a BA earns right mm -hmm. lots of good statistics on that well uh, this is yeah I'm so, sorry so we definitely have a have, have to carry the struggle forward and that's why i said earlier it's 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 an unfinished educational project the the, the, the current uh work of africana studies department right just think about where we would be if there were no Africana Studies Department. Hmm. Having worked in predominantly white institutions uh, for the past 40 years, I am telling you, right, that hmm. if we did not have these Africana Studies Departments, the number of African Americans with PhDs, MAs, PAs, I mean significantly less. Hmm. Right? So we haven't gotten there but we need to build, we need to know where we are, what we have in fact achieved. We'll count our blessings. It's, 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 it, it, that is still incomplete, hmm. but then make a commitment 
to carry it further. Mm. I uh, completely agree. And I think that, you know, reassessing our history and, and evaluating, we analyze, we scrutinize, and then we come up with something better. We, we come up with what we can do uh, for a better trajectory in, in securing ourselves and our education and our imagination, our innovation, our technology, et cetera, et cetera, uh, so that it doesn't get lost in history and, and commandeered like it has been thus far. It has been a really incredible <laughs> panel discussion. I want. I have so many more questions. I have so for the both of you. I have so many more questions. It's not ending, um, but we have to go. It's been a, over an hour uh, and a half. So I just want to thank you both uh, for coming on and sharing all this information and educating myself. And for all the people who are watching, uh, who are being educated as well, uh, I really appreciate your presence and your energy because you are changing the the world just as John Lewis, uh, just as Martin, just as Malcolm, who has inspired you to have your ideologies and your mentality and to, to pass it on uh, to people like me, myself and others. But blessings to you both. Uh, thank you for tuning in. If you're watching this panel today, please donate to the Black Caucus Movement because everything that you donate goes straight to uh, the, the community projects that we work on here in the Black Caucus. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. I'm kind of upset and disappointed that she didn't tell me sooner. Because <laughs> I would have got you something nice, but I'm still going to do that. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Foster, for being on today. I really appreciate you sharing your birthday and your knowledge and your wisdom with, with me and everyone who is who's tuned in today. Well, that's our show. Have a blessed one. We're going to try to have you guys on again, uh, doctor, both doctors. <laughs> it's hard to say doctor, 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 but both of you um, have blessed us. And I want to continue this conversation with you and continue to figure out what we can do for the future and build this kind of educational process uh, working on these structures. So thank you all for tuning in. Have a blessed day and we'll see you next time.